Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on September 26th, 2016. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... If you can imagine these uh, these scenes from old westerns, you know, where there's two guys standing apart from each other and they pull out their guns, you know, and the first one to, to shoot is the winner. Well, it's kind of like that for sex in flatworms, except instead of guns, it's penises. That's Karen Bondar. She's a biologist, a TV presenter, and fortunately, a writer with a particular interest in sex. Her new book is called Wild Sex, which was also the title of her popular web series. Wild sex, in this case, does not mean the end tables are getting knocked over. She's talking about sex out in the wild among animals who are not just boring human beings. Bondar was in New York recently on a book tour. We spoke at Scientific American. Karen, another book that I cannot read on the subway <laughs> just because of the big title and the cover picture. and Yeah, it's a bad plane read. <laughs> it's a bad plane read, plane read, train read. This is a book to read in the privacy of your home, <laughs> maybe in the bathtub with some candles. No, wild sex. As you point out in the book, human sex is really boring compared to what goes on out there. It is so boring and it is so easy. It is remarkably straightforward. <laughs> Straightforward in that all the equipment sort of just easily goes with each other. and Part A fits into slot B, and it generally does so without too much commotion. Um, yeah, when you think about how sex occurs in the animal kingdom, things are just so much more than that. And I like to consider sex as not being just the act, although the act tends to be pretty, unfortunately, violent for most animals. Again, we're lucky. And just the act, even the stuff that you probably have seen in nature documentaries is pretty, rec you know, you see apes or bears or antelopes or lions. You recognize it as being basically the same, you know, there are definitely some important differences. I think of lions and the antics they're up to. But, you know, it's recognizable. But when you get out into some of the other creatures, and especially when you leave mammalia, then things get really wild. Things get very wild. And, you know, when you get into the invertebrate world, Anything goes, really. And here is where we don't necessarily see something that we would consider to look like a penis or a vagina. And we see, you know, weapons, really, a lot of times rather than what we consider to be genitals, though they are genitals. They're getting ripped off. They're getting stabbed in. They're getting ripped apart, stuck together, nibbled off. I mean, there's just so many ways that that, that procreation can happen. And I love love thinking about the processes of evolution that have occurred to make these things, you know, a valid option for the animals at hand. When you say ripped off, you don't mean stolen from. You mean ripped <laughs> clean off. You know, I mean both because right. there's a couple of instances where male bees, for example, um, will collect certain pollens to create a potpourri of, of beautiful scents for potential female mates. This is a certain species of bee. And um, other males who aren't as apt or, or lucky or clever at making this beautiful perfume will kill the male who made it, rip his legs off, and use them to, to court females of their own. So, because the legs are where that stuff has been stored on the original collector. Exactly. Right. Yes. So they just, you know, basically they steal, they, they murder the guy, steal his wallet, and buy some nice 
perfume and dinner for the for the lady. That's exactly <laughs> what it is, and I love thinking about it in terms like that. Yeah. Right. So the book is divided into three big parts. Before, during, and after, basically. Exactly. Because I like to, you know, people kind of get the idea that all I ever talk about is that one act of copulation. Um, but the process of sex is just so much bigger than that. And that's why sex is involved, you know, even in, in why and how you and I are sitting here today. Sex has played a role in that. People don't often realize just how much sex plays a part in our lives. So, yes, everything from, uh, you know, becoming sexually mature and then looking for, finding, and courting that mate, actually engaging in successful sex with that mate, and then, of course, dealing with the aftermath of your sexual practices, that is, uh, dealing with your offspring. And many different species have, have high levels of parental care, others not so much. But again, there's a whole gamut of how to make your offspring reproductively successful. Because after all, what we want is to increase our biological fitness or the amount of our own genetic blueprints in future generations. And it's even more than that because you also go into topics like homosexuality throughout animals, um, masturbation throughout animals. The horse masturbation story was something I was not aware of. I wasn't either. And this was something that I found shocking. And it speaks to humans how we, even in this day and age, sex is still a taboo topic. We don't like to consider ourselves sexual beings, despite the fact that our closest primate relatives, the pygmy chimpanzees or bonobos, are incredibly sexual organisms. So horses um, are quite sexually active. Uh, males experience erection and and undergo masturbation by by rubbing themselves on things several times per day. But of course, in the equestrian industry, where it's all very prim and proper, um, this is very much frowned upon. And there is just an unbelievable selection of anti-masturbatory um, gadgets and things you can buy to prevent your horse, your, your stallion, which is just ironic, isn't it, that it's called a stallion, uh, from masturbating. And this is politically correct to do so. But interestingly, stallion, male stallion horses, I mean, the ones that win most of the shows, are totally sexually messed up because they're, they have been sort of discouraged from, from engaging in what comes naturally to them sexually. And so that really sets the scene for stallions not really being interested in sex in, in sort of conventional ways. So they're psychologically... Right. Yeah. Very disturbed. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's just and, and as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, I love to do things that you said, which is just c compare this to human terms. What would this be like if it was in a human? I mean, it's just it is crazy that sex is so taboo that that these these prize winning stallions are unable to do it. Um, what would that look like in a human world? But let's let's talk about some of the. Let me, let me put it to you this way. What did you learn when you were writing the book that just shocked you mm -hmm. about what goes on out there? I think that what I liked most about my journey in researching and writing this book was that I discovered a couple of themes that humbled even me as, as somebody with a very open mind uh, and, and a biology background. Um how often homosexuality occurs, why it occurs in different contexts. Um, you have, I have yet to find a species that doesn't actually engage in some level of homosexual behavior. And the, the, the very 
well-founded scientific theories for why this occurs are are quite interesting and something that we can learn a lot about. And again, we don't need to necessarily question these kinds of things in our own species because we, like every other species out there, is doing it. Um, another one that I found to be very interesting is is the whole monogamy scenario. So, and I've <laughs> recently developed this term that I lovingly call the perfectly perfect person hypothesis. And this is something that humans do, where we like to find a person, one person who is our social, socially monogamous partner and our sexually monogamous partner. Uh, humans are 100% exclusive in the animal kingdom in terms of doing that. This This perfectly perfect partner does not exist anywhere else. And this is something I find tremendously interesting about our species. Yeah, the uh, even species that were long time thought to be monogamous, when they got studied really closely, true monogamy is incredibly rare. I mean, it does exist, but it's really rare. That's right. And where you will see it is um, species of birds that have a high degree of shared parental care. And this makes sense because a female can uh, extrude those fertilized eggs very quickly after she after they're fertilized. And then mom and dad can go ahead and take take turns uh, looking after the eggs, incubating the eggs. The same thing doesn't happen in a lot of invertebrates and never happens in mammals. And so, yeah, you just, you don't expect monogamy. But interestingly, yeah, a lot of these species that we had considered to be the <laughs> the good family models for us to look towards, you know, things like penguins or, or some of these other family dwelling animals. Well, with the advent of genetic sequencing, where biologists were actually able to go in and say, okay, well, whose children belong to whom? We found out that sexual monogamy is an absolute no-go. No, not in any of the species, even if there are socially monogamous. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of species have a, a socially monogamous partner that, you know, they may share a nest or a burrow together. They certainly may have sexual activities together, but those sexual activities are almost never exclusive. Males go off in search of other female partners. And, of course, they leave their female partners at home uh, only to be discovered by a different male partner who is out searching for additional female partners. Right. So One of the birds goes on a business trip for the weekend. <laughs> And all hell breaks loose, but then they come back and they reestablish their socially monogamous lives together. Correct. Yeah, because a lot of times, you know, especially in difficult climate years, for example, where resources are harder to come by, it is important for both mom and dad to be contributing resources to a nest. And sure, in a lot of cases, males may actually be contributing effort uh, in terms of resources to offspring that don't belong to him genetically. But chances are there's another guy out there who's doing the exact same thing to some of his own offspring. So in the end, it kind of works itself out. Some of the actual physical uh, apparatus that goes into sex in some of these creatures is amazing, like the the, the jousting matches. <laughs> You can imagine these uh, these scenes from old westerns, you know, where there's two guys standing apart from each other and they pull out their guns, you know, and the first one to, to shoot is the winner. Well, it's kind of like that for sex in flatworms, except instead of guns, it's penises. We're talking about flatworms now. That, uh, yes, yeah. flatworms, and you would definitely find these guys uh, in the ocean. So these yeah. are aquatic. And uh, so, yeah, and, and also another really important characteristic here of the flatworms is that they are hermaphroditic. And that means that they're both male and female at the same time. And it's in these hermaphrodites uh, where you can essentially think that they're at war with themselves as well as at war with every other part 
partner that they have. This is where we see some of the really horrifying um, <laughs> sexual practices. So these two guys erect penises out standoff because the first one to successfully stab, and I do mean stab, these things are razor sharp, his penis, his, her, you know, uh, into the partner will play the more male role in the future uh, together with this partner. Now, that's important because it's very easy to be a male when it comes to sex. You have sperm, you shoot it out, you fertilize the female's eggs, and off you go. <laughs> it's <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, it's much more difficult and uh, and time time consuming uh, and energy energy consuming to be the female because first of all, eggs are expensive, and then second of all, eggs need to be gestated and and dealt with, and then of course uh, given birth to, depending on the species, right? And so it's much more expensive to be a female. So most hermaphrodites, when they encounter a partner, have a suite of techniques that they use to to manipulate the maleness, if you will, uh, of their sexual partner so that they can become the male and their partner becomes the female. Make the other one do most of the work. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that's how you will maximize your own uh, genetic blueprints in future generations. If I'm only being the male, and, and that said, there's always some femaleness going on, of course, because these, we have to, to assume these things have evolved over time and there's got to be advantages for being male and female. But for the most part, you know, and these things are having sex a lot, mm -hmm. you know, several times a day. Um, so yeah, we want to just get that sperm out there and also say to our potential partner, now stop having sex and use my sperm for all of your aches, and that will make me mostly reproductively successful. So I was at a party recently, <laughs> and uh, the subject came up uh, where uh, somebody didn't realize that all the kittens in a litter don't necessarily have to have the same father. And uh, so uh, we, we looked it up, and, and it's theoretically possible that every kitten in the litter could have a different father. So that brings me to the, the various techniques that you describe in the book that different animals have developed to figure out, it's not a, a conscious process, but to determine which sperm they want to actually use, which, the females, which sperm they want to use to actually fertilize their eggs. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, there are a lot of different ver versions of this at different, different, whole different types of animals do this. The post copulatory sperm selection is wild. And let's talk about that subject just a little bit in it whatever is, way you want. Yeah, this is such an interesting topic because it's something that e eludes scientists to a certain extent because it's very difficult to study how this happens. But yes, so many females, and I do, I, I lovingly call this chapter super tramps because a lot of females have sex with a lot of males. Um, so it could be, you know, one female, 20, 30 males. Um, but this does make a lot of sense if they are able to utilize the DNA of different dads and have a very genetically diverse brood. This can be advantageous in terms of living in, you know, very stochastic or changing environments, weather-wise or landscape-wise. Um, and, it's, and it's generally a, a really advantageous thing to do. Just what the mechanisms are for something like cryptic female choice, it's, it's tough to elucidate, but 
Interestingly, a lot of females have very, very complex reproductive systems. And this has been studied a little bit um, more in the duck system. And if, if you know anything about ducks mating or fowl in general, it's very violent and horrible. I remember the first time I saw it, I was at a little, you know, a little lake and, you know, we were having a little picnic and it was lovely. And then these ducks came along and started, you know, basically what it is is gang rape. Um, and they pretty much you know, keep the female in this water, they almost drown her. I was throwing rocks. I was horrified. I was absolutely upset by this thing. But I, but I learned after, this is exactly what ducks do. This is unfortunately how it is in ducks. Not to mention, just take a second and talk about duck penises. <laughs> the duck penises, incredible. Uh, from completely flaccid to totally ejaculated in less than a second. This thing is a spiral. You've got to look up on Google how the video of this thing. It's incredible. This little spiral wormy thing, just bam, out it comes. Uh, So at least it's quick, if nothing else. Um, The female, of course, has a spiral-shaped vagina to receive this thing. But what she also has is a very complex series of tubes. Uh, Some are blind endings. Others are tubes that lead directly to her ovaries. And so what the female can do, among other things, is alter her postures during sex um, to manipulate where certain sperms will go. Some of the sperms will go to these blind tunnels and never be used to father the offspring, uh, and others will. So that's that's an example where a behavior that the female can do is actually, and you wonder, is she thinking about this? You know, what is the co- level of consciousness at a, f- at a female duck that she's going, nope, don't like you, I'm going to do it this way? Uh, because there's also a lot of physiological mechanisms um, at a level that perhaps it precludes, you know, consciousness on that level that, you know, females will, um, somehow their bodies will allow the sperm of the most suitable suitor to reach her ovaries um, more more likely than, than any other sperm. And, you know, this is where it makes it extremely difficult to study, because how do you study that? Right. But you, but you assume that on a molecular level, there's some kind of assay that the female is able to perform. And who knows what it is, the level of sugar, the level of proteins. She's measuring something with her own molecular machinery that then triggers the decision about which sperm to keep and which to throw out. That's absolutely right. And and so these are incredibly complex mechanisms that biochemists and and behaviorists are working on together. Another really interesting example that's a little more tangible is in some spiders that use these wonderful things called mating plugs. And and I often sort of refer to these as being like chastity belts. Essentially, uh, a female gets sealed up one way or another, whether it's with something, you know, tough and hard like a limb or a detached penis um, or something a little bit more um, synthetic like a like a plastic-like substance, something really sticky. So in, in a couple of cases, there's spider species where the male will secrete part of this mating plug um, into his female's genitals after he has deposited his sperm. And then if the female likes him, she will then go ahead and secrete the second part. It's almost like a two-part epoxy, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, so if she is pleased with the mate, she will then be on board with essentially being sealed up. And this this precludes any other males from bugging her um, and trying to get on board to have sex with her. She, She will be essentially closed for business. (laughs) If, however, she doesn't like the male partner, she can withhold 
you know, secreting part two onto the mating plug and, and is free to go and mate with others. And you talk in the book, I forget which species it is, uh, where the sperm may be stored for a year before it gets used. Yeah. And it's, this is internally. They're not putting it in a freezer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, this is something that's actually even relevant in our own species. We are, you know, biologists and, and physiologists are currently looking at how humans do that too because even other mammals, um, things like marsupials, can store sperm for long periods of time, several months. And so what is it about the female's physiology that can keep this sperm alive? Because certainly we know that, you know, sperm out in that airborne sperm does not last very long. Um, but there's some kind of pH mixture, whatever it is, in certain female reproductive tracts. And I mean, some females have structures called sperm which are evolved specifically for sperm storage. They can be one big ginormous melting pot of all the sperm she's collected. They can be very carefully layered um, in terms of first one in is on the bottom, next one, next one, next one. And there may be even some mechanisms by which the females can actually specifically choose a layer um, at a certain at a time when she needs to fertilize her eggs. Crazy. Yeah, it's things are nuts. out there. <laughs> But uh, you also, you talk a, a lot about, um, well, not a lot. It's not a huge part of the book, but one of the chapters is all about, uh, you know, maybe maybe one of the most fascinating things in nature is the females who eat their male partners. And some of them aren't even their male partners. They just eat other guys who happen to drift by and nice think they're going to be a partner. Snack. Yeah. <laughs> It's just, you know, and people often have totally valid questions about sexual cannibalism because how on earth can you continue to maximize your biological fitness uh, if you're dead? Um, and so what we have to keep in mind with a lot of these species is that several of the males will only have one or two chances to mate in their lifetime. So they've got to really go for the most bang they can get for their buck, <laughs> pun intended. And um, so a lot of times what that means is allowing the female to perhaps feast on his body. Because if you'll note in some of those um, praying mantid videos that are all over the place online, the male's decapitated body continues to have sex with the female <laughs> as she is devouring his head. But let's think about that. She's busy. She's not out there seeking another partner. She is busy eating his head. She will then go on to have sex with his body. But his sperm will have had a much longer period of time to reach her eggs. If he tried to get away, um, chances are you know, she would go and seek another mate before his sperm had a chance to reach her eggs. Now, you brought up a case of where females actually just eat males. <laughs> and this happens in a lot of different cases. Um, in one case, there's a, a praying mantid that is indigenous to New Zealand. And this one is being wiped out at a very quick rate um, by an invading South African praying mantid species. And in this case, they're pretty closely related. And so males are attracted to the pheromonal signals, these these fake pheromonal signals, if you will, of the uh, invading females. So these invading South African females, here they are, they're attracting the New Zealand males. 
they're eating the New Zealand males before they have a chance to have sex with anybody. So you can see how this is a very effective strategy for wiping out the indigenous species. It's crazy. And in other spider species, um, there's something that we call aggressive spillover. And this is uh, a suite of characteristics that are inherited all together. Um, some of the characteristics are great for biological fitness for the females. They're larger. They're more fecund. They have more eggs. But they're also very aggressive. And chances are they may simply just eat males. Go around snacking on males because they're pissed off at the world. <laughs> And um, they're not generally very selective over the males that they have sex with. Interestingly, the females that that don't have this suite of characteristics, the non-aggressive spillover females, uh, the weaker ones, if you will, are the ones that are actually exerting selective pressure on the males because they are choosing uh, which males they copulate with. But the aggressive females, nope, they're just out there being crazy. Yeah, and here is in this scenario – where the the male is mating and and being killed is where you, it's really helpful to think of in terms of the selfish gene kind of outlook where all that matters is getting those genes duplicated and passed on to future generations because that's that's how we're going to be measuring fitness is in terms of the number of genes that that wind up being passed along and spread out into the environment there that's right. And that's what we ascribe, you know, that's what we, we biologists ascribe to all animals out there, that this is what they're trying to do. And, you know, interestingly, this gets into some some topics that are that are worthy of thinking about when we talk about us, mammals, primates especially, you know, because humans are so different from that. Humans are often doing things to totally limit our biological fitness. You know, we're using birth control. We're, um, w you know, we're, we're exclusively having homosexual sex. We're doing all sorts of things that don't maximize our biological fitness. Um, so I love thinking about the line. Like, where's that line where animals start going, hmm, you know, I'm busy today. <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily want to spend all my time and energy maximizing uh, my genetic blueprints and future generations. And these are questions that aren't answered yet, but they are extremely fun to ask. I'm busy today. I have to wash my fur. Right. Well, you see, you know, certain species of um, baboons, uh, the olive baboons in Nigeria, for example, um, there's this African black plum that, that flowers at a very specific time of year. And the fruits, the fruits become available. And the females, even though these are totally generalist feeders, um, meaning they can eat pretty much anything. But when the plums are available, the females go for the plums. The males don't. The females do. Now, the plums themselves contain high levels of progesterone, and they effectively shut down the female's reproductive system, much like uh, the contraceptive pill does for many, many millions of, of human females. And, you know, biologists are all up in arms about this. Well, there's got to be something, you know, maybe maybe in future reproductive seasons, this means that females will be able to have more offspring and so on and so forth. But, you know... Maybe they just want to break. <laughs> Maybe they do, Steve. I certainly did. You, you had four kids. I have you, four. I, what are the exact words at, at the end of your book about that? I don't want any more. I'm perfectly happy with the level of biological fitness that I'm contributing to future generations. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. 
where you can follow the announcements of the Nobel Prizes in the Sciences on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. We're planning podcast coverage of the prizes, and in coming weeks we'll also talk about what fish know, about training your cat, and we'll have more audio from my July trip through the Grand Canyon. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>